0: Well, good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Brad Chaney. We're in the, at the end of Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24, today. It probably goes without saying that the Ascension is an undervalued event in most Protestant churches. Am I on, guys? Am I, we're, we're, we're going? We're good. Yeah, the Ascension is, is an undervalued event in most Protestant churches. We do a pretty good job with the death and resurrection of Jesus on Good Friday and Easter in particular. But rarely do we, ref, ref, do we reflect much on the Ascension or celebrate it as a holiday. There are no Ascension presents or Ascension bunnies or Ascension baskets. Uh, and yet, it really is every bit as much of a holiday as Christmas and Easter. In fact, there would be no gospel if it weren't for the ascension of Jesus Christ. If I can borrow an illustration from Star Wars, in the original movie when Obi-Wan and Darth Vader are having their epic lightsaber duel in the Death Star, and Luke Skywalker is in the hangar and he's watching from a distance, near the end of that battle, Obi-Wan says, "'You can't win, Darth, for if you strike me down, I'll become more powerful than you can possibly imagine.'" And at that moment, as you recall, he lifts his arms above himself and, and uh, Vader's red blade splices through him and he just vanishes. He goes, he goes poof and his life returns to the force. And in a parallel way, you know, the loss of Jesus' bodily presence on earth makes it possible for his power to be unleashed throughout the earth. I mean, we read in the Gospels, we see Jesus work miracles. He, he raises a little girl from the dead, and we think, oh, he's, he's so powerful. But honestly, that is nothing. It's nothing compared to what he is doing presently at the Father's right hand. You know, according to Luke, this is a very important event because you have Luke writing two volumes, the, book, the Gospel of Luke and then the, the book of Acts, and in the uh, those two books, or those two volumes, I guess really the, probably a singular work in two volumes, he includes the account of the Ascension twice. He's the only writer in all the Bible who gives you two Ascension accounts. We read the first at the beginning of our service in the call to worship from Acts 1. And we read the second now from Luke 24, verse 36. While they were still talking about this, that is, Jesus appearing to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus himself stood among, among the twelve and he said to them, Peace be with you. While they were startled and frightened, uh, they were startled and frightened thinking that they saw a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do, you, do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. I'm going, and then verse 49 is interesting. This is why in the Apostles' Creed, we say that Jesus that the, the the spirit was sent by the father and the son is because of in part verse 49 i am going to send you what my father has promised that is the holy spirit but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high and when he had led them out to the vicinity of bethany he lifted up his hands and blessed them and while he was blessing them he left them and was taken up into heaven Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In Westminster Abbey in London sits a Gothic-styled oak armchair. It has four gilded lions, which serve as the legs a compartment underneath the chair for a special stone and a very high back. It's called King Edward's chair. It was commissioned by Edward I in the year 1297. He paid a kingly price at that time for it, a hundred shillings. Uh, for, to the, the craftsman who made it. And you probably know that every British monarch has been um, crowned while seated in King Edward's chair, except for two. So what I did this week is I pulled up on YouTube the most recent crowning of the monarch. That would be Queen Elizabeth II. In 1953, she was crowned, she was crowned queen. Uh, and you can pull up the whole black and white ceremony, you know, two plus hours on YouTube. It's really interesting. Um, extremely majestic, pomp and circumstance, all of the like. Um, 1953. It comes to the very end of the service when the Archbishop of Canterbury takes the crown um, and he, he, he walks to her and he raises the crown above her head like, like this. And very slowly, he, began, he, he lowers the crown until finally it is resting upon her head. And it's incredible. You watch the video. And there's almost an audible gasp in uh, Westminster Abbey. She's like, oh. And then what do the people do? As soon as a crown touches her head, they start, they start exclaiming, God save the queen. God save the queen. Uh, there's just a huge ex- exclamation. Uh, it's very powerful. And I wonder if you realize this. Ascension Day is Christ's coronation. It is his coronation day. And can you imagine what heaven sounded like when Christ enters into that throne room and he is seated on the throne and he has placed upon his head the crown. I mean, the king of the universe, king of kings and Lord of lords. It's, it's placed on his head. I mean, what a celebration. You watch the Queen, I mean, Queen Elizabeth being crowned. And you realize, I mean, it would, truly it was, it was a great day of celebrating uh, in, in England. And isn't it strange that we have one day, 40 days after Easter, when Jesus was crowned King of the Universe. And you know what? Most of us didn't even know that Thursday was Ascension Day. <laughs> we paid no attention to it. Um, yeah, I, I know Joe said earlier, it's hard for us to imagine what the throne room of, of heaven is like. But uh, if Jesus came to earth and he was serenaded in the sky with myriads upon myriads of angels, Gloria in excelsis Deo, like how much greater must it have been when all of heaven is there, all of heaven, to, uh, to sing about him being king and so, yeah, I said earlier that Ascension Day is a, is a largely neglected celebration in Protestant circles. But, you know, whenever anyone uh, calls Jesus Lord or whenever the lyrics to a praise and worship song includes references to thrones or crowns, all of those are drawing from the walls of the Ascension. All of it is is really just an an offshoot of Revelation 3.21, where Jesus says to the church of Laodicea, I conquered and I sat down with my father on his throne. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So what I want to talk about now is several reasons why Jesus needed to go to heaven. I mean, beyond the obvious fact that it was the father's will and desire for him to be crowned. Why is it he needed to go to heaven, say, on our behalf? And the first, first reason he ascended was, quite simply, to sh- secure our salvation. And what do I mean by that? If you go back to the book of Leviticus, one of the things you notice about you know, all of the Levitical sacrifices is, uh, you know, a sacrifice was intended to provide atonement for sin. But atonement for sin wasn't wasn't actually completely accomplished merely with the death of the sacrificial animal. Like, killing the animal didn't do it atonement was actually only fully complete when that animal was burned on the altar and the smoke rises to heaven and one might say the the animal in the smoke ascends into heaven and the priestly work that has been performed ascends into heaven and is a a pleasing aroma in God's sight and only then is it is atonement completed we might say well, what book in the New Testament is the book that focuses most on the priestly work of Jesus? That would be the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews, you know, several biblical scholars make this argument that atonement is not simply achieved by Jesus' death on the cross. But in the book of Hebrews, as the author of Hebrews is imagining it, um, atonement sets in into, uh, rather the cross sets into motion, all, all of the, the, the priests, Jesus, ascent into heaven. Quote, and that because Jesus' human body rose to an indestructible life, he is able to present his blood, his body, his very self in the very place where they need to be presented, ascended before God in heaven. Did you notice when we read from Hebrews 1 earlier how it said, after he made purification for sin, then he was crowned. And so there was a sense that he needed to, like the, the sacrifice and the priest needed to go up at, to accomplish it all. And we sing about this in the great hymn, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever pleads for me, My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Like he is there for us on our behalf, securing uh, our salvation by his priestly work in heaven. That's the first reason. The second reason Christ ascended to heaven was to send the Spirit. We talked about that already from the New City Catechism. To send the Spirit and further the spread of the gospel. Look with me, if you will, at verses 52 and 53. You know, these guys, these uh, disciples, they had just lost their best friend, their very best friend and traveling companion. They'd spent the last three years of uh, their days with him, yet they don't walk away from uh, the Mount of Olives, with bloodshot eyes and tears. No, we read in fifty two and fifty three the immediate response or effect that the ascension have on them has on them, and it says they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Their response to the ascension was worship, joy, and praise. Why? Because they believed. What Jesus had already told them, that it was better for him, it was better for them, if he went away. And we'll talk about it next week in um, John 16, uh, the sermon on Pentecost. But John 16, 7, he said, It is for your good that I'm going away, because unless I go away, the advocate, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And what happens when he sends uh, the Spirit to these 12 guys? Uh, <laughs> they are utterly and completely transformed. You know, at first glance, the ascension seems to be, uh, feel like a very bad evangelism strategy. Because it removes from the earth the key piece of evidence that substantiates the claims of Christianity, right? It removes the resurrected Jesus uh, from the earth. And we think... Well, that's that's kind of a a killer. But it seems like I love this analogy. It seems like our best player got subbed out of the game as it was just beginning. But the ascension, it it overturns that analogy. On the contrary, what the spirit does when he comes is he takes the JV junior high basketball squad and turns them into NBA all-stars. Like all 12 of these guys turn into Michael Jordans. They are completely transformed. I mean, remember, these are guys that didn't have an ounce of of natural charisma. Um, These were guys, were they courageous warriors? Hmm? No. Hardly. They run at the first sign of danger. But once they are, in the words of 53, clothed with power from on high, um, they are completely transformed. And you remember the words at the end of the Great Commission, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we're comforted by that. Oh, Jesus is going to be with us. But, uh, but on the day of Pentecost, they discovered that that's not exactly true, that he's not just with us, like by, by our side with us. He, he's actually in them. He is in them with them. And therefore, all the courage, eloquence, and wisdom that Jesus possessed on earth, these men have it in themselves by the Spirit. And they fly out into the world as golden-tongued preachers, preaching you know, the, uh, the, the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins to the nations. Um, so that's the second reason, to send the Spirit and further the spread of the gospel. Another huge benefit of the ascension is now that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, he is not limited spatially. I mean, if Jesus, if he was on earth right now and he was like, say, on the other side of the globe um, in, uh, I don't know, Thailand, well, if he's in Thailand, then he can't be in Canada. And if he's in... You know, or if he's in Canada, then he can't be in Brazil. But, you know, he's no longer limited spatially. He can go by his spirit anywhere he wants to. And if you just consider what that means, that means he can go into hospital rooms that are closed off by COVID, ICUs that are on lockdown. That means that he can go into rat-infested dungeons and prison camps and meet with persecuted Christians. I mean, we can imagine him... It's kind of cool thinking about this, him donning a Harry Potter invisibility cloak and walking right through the twisted corridors of a prison in North Korea and coming to a brother or sister and saying, they can't keep me away from you. They can't keep you away from me. I'm right here. And he is, if you think about it, he is present with persecuted Christians right now pouring his love into their hearts. He is present with Christians in the hospital room who can't see anybody except their doctors and nurses right now, reassuring them that he's not abandoned them and that everything will turn out for their good. If you go back to the call to worship with me at the beginning of Acts one nine, Joe already alluded to this of a sort, but I want to expand on it. Where is it in my Bible? Acts one nine. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. You know, that normally our picture is that Jesus, at the ascension, is kind of like a hot air balloon, who, you know, starts on the ground, and, and he goes up, and it at 1,000 feet, he's a, he's a tinier speck in the air. Then he gets to maybe 10,000 feet and he's just, he's, you can barely see him up there. He hits 20,000 feet and he just goes behind a cloud. Like There's a cumulus cloud at 20,000 feet above uh, Palestine that day and, and there he vanishes. But I mean nearly every single commentator, every single biblical scholar, they say this is not the cloud. I mean cloud is significant in the Bible. This isn't a white puffy cotton ball in the sky. No, the cloud is is a reference, always a reference to the luminous appearance of God around his people in the Old Testament. And they always call the presence of God, the glory of God, a cloud. Um, And so the idea is, yeah, not that this is an air traffic control moment, but that the Jesus, what I envision is he goes up like fifty to hundred feet, and then and then essentially the gateway to heaven opens, and the glory, the glory cloud of heaven is what you see, and he enters into the throne room of heaven just like that. And it just it's not far away, and then boom, it's there. I didn't know that Joe was going to quote Tom Wright on this at the beginning, but I have my own Tom Wright quote. He puts it so eloquently. What we are encouraged to grasp precisely through the ascension is that God's space and ours, heaven and earth, are though very different, they're not that far away from one another. God's space and ours interlock and intersect in, in a whole variety of ways. Um, Even when they retain, at least for the moment, their separate and distinct identities. One day, heaven and earth will be joined in in a new way. It'll be open and and visible to one another, married together forever. And then he concludes, Jesus is in heaven ruling the whole world, and one day he will return to make that rule complete. They're not that far away. Another thing that we celebrate on this Ascension uh, uh, Sunday is that the temptation of Jesus Christ really comes full circle on this day. Remember what happens. He goes into the desert and he is tempted by Satan for how long? 40 days. 40 days. Uh, he, he doesn't eat. He's... he's uh, He's afflicted. He's probably at the lowest point of his earthly life. He's the weakest and, and most vulnerable frame of mind. And at that moment, Satan comes and he says, I can make all of your dreams come true. I'll just give you, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the nations, all the kingdoms in this world. They will be yours if you just bow down and worship me. Well, when does the ascension occur? The ascension occurs 40 days After his resurrection. And what does Jesus get on that 40th day? He gets all of the nations. All the kingdoms of this world. Um, And that's even demonstrated 10 days later. On the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit's poured out and you've got these Jews in Jerusalem who are coming from all over the Roman Empire, and these guys all start to speak languages that are not their own, languages of all the surrounding nations, it's just a symbol that indeed the Father has given the Son all of the nations. will talk more about that next week. But what God has done is essentially he has given what Satan had promised. He is rewarding the son because of the son's faithfulness. I mean, the son did it the right way. He didn't take the, the short and the shortcut, the easy path. He, he, he trusted God that his father would be faithful to his promises, and he has given all the nations. It's, it's really the ultimate fulfillment of 1 Samuel chapter 7. Remember how the Lord promised to David that one day God would place one of David's descendants on the throne of Israel. He said to David, Your throne will be established forever. And the ascension is the ultimate fulfillment of that, that the son of David, makes it out of the wilderness and is given the royal seat at the right hand of God. The Father's right hand being the place of executive rule in fulfillment of First Samuel 7. Uh, in conclusion, if heaven is the control room of earth, our man is there on our behalf. And, and our man there, Jesus he is so majestic. I mean, beyond description. John, you know, John tries to capture it at the beginning of the book of Revelation. He describes Jesus with seven features. He, and, and all of these are, they're, they're an image. And they're all connected to other passages in the Old Testament. But just consider the majesty of this, this image. Head and hair, white like wool. Eyes like flames of fire. Feet like burnished bronze. A voice like many waters. Holding stars in his right, oops, not left hand, right hand. Stars in his right hand. A two-edged sword coming from his mouth. And his face, it said, his face shone like the sun. Um, you know, part of the, the difficult of being a believer, being a believing Christian, is, you know, none of us have seen Jesus like that. Um, none of us have heard the voice of, of that sounds like rushing waters. None of us have seen the face that shines in, in blinding, blinding brilliance. Um, that has only, those images have only been given to a very select few. Um, and so why, what do we have to do then? what we really have to do is we have to lift up our hearts, lift up our minds to heaven that we might behold Jesus there. And by faith, friends, we are united to Jesus. We are united in his death and in his resurrection and in his ascension, Paul says, which means that right now we are raised up. We are raised up and seated with Christ. Ephesians 2.6, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3.1, God, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. Oh, I guess he says the exact same thing again. We are ascended with Christ. And obviously that can lead to uh, an unhealthy spiritual triumphalism. But what it really ought to do, it, not to uh, self-assurance of uh, uh, triumphalistic self-assurance, but rather uh, a deep desire in our hearts to live a life worthy of our ascended king. I mean, to live a life worthy of our royal calling. Um, It should promote promote in us a sense of awe at the grace of God, which turned rebellious sinners like us into royal heirs, heirs of his glorious kingdom. You know, sometimes... Many times maybe we don't feel empowered uh, by the holy spirit as these royal sons and daughters and ambassadors of Christ on earth but I can tell you this that if Christ hadn't ascended we would be immeasurably weaker than we are right now we'd be so much weaker well we have such a we do have a great power and gift in his spirit and we are to use that for the extension of the kingdom of God on earth it's 16th century Uh, Christian nun Teresa of Avila's famous quote where she said, one of the implications of the ascension is that Christ has no body now on earth but yours the church. No hands on earth, but yours, the church. No feet on earth, but yours, the church. Yours are the eyes through which the compassion of Christ must look out on the world. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. And yours are the hands with which Christ is to bless his people. We are the mouths that bring the good news. And and that's true of us individually and that's true of us corporately. Um, And all of that is because of the glorious ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.